So, Will. Yes? This movie mostly is known as a movie that was scary to children. I would say that's the main thing it's famous for. I don't think anyone could tell you anything about this movie besides that it scared them. Well, also, they returned to Oz. They did return to Oz. But it does (laughs) lead me to wonder, what other children's movie scared you to... degree that felt unnecessary in a movie for children. I mean, there's the the thing of, like, movies that are notorious for scaring children, of which this is one. I feel like a lot of people have, like, stories of horror or other feelings at a movie like Labyrinth or The Dark Crystal. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're asking it scared me, I was, like, easily frightened by movies as a kid. Like, I found most of the Disney villains terrifying. Like, animal ones were good, but, like, scary people in Disney movies really freaked me out. Like, Maleficent? The Evil Queen, Maleficent, Jafar, all these people, I was like, get them away from me. <laughs> The one that, like, had the big reputation of being scary in my house growing up is really just for one sequence, and that's Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Oh, the child catcher? The child napper was, like the boogeyman in my house growing up in part because like I was the person who was scared by all the Disney movies, but like my sisters were also scared by the child napper or as we called him nose people. (laughs) (laughs) One person. He has a really long nose that he uses to sniff out children. And we referred to him as nose people. We would play a game that was basically hide and seek but there was no seeker. It was just understood that the person looking for us was those people. Oh my God. <laughs> so we were terrified, but also clearly delighted on some level because we wanted to put ourselves in the space of children hiding from those people. And we would like make our babysitters play this with us. Were they the nose people or did you bring in? No, they were also hiding with us. Nobody was nose people. Nose people <laughs> was the guy from the movie. So how did it? Yeah. Who... We got bored, I guess. I don't remember. <laughs> That's, honestly, we need to bring back Fiona because I have questions about how this actually worked. <laughs> Look, we could do a Chitty Chitty Bang Bang episode. That movie, unlike this one, has real romance in it. Yeah, we'd have more to talk about, that's for sure. <laughs> we could do like three points on Toot Sweets alone. My God. The movie that freaked me out the most, I don't remember the plot. I don't remember any character names. I just remember the terror. And I, my sister wanted to watch it every time we were at my grandma's house because she had it on VHS and we didn't. I'm like racking my brains. Is this like The Last Unicorn or something? The Black Cauldron. Oh, oh. I love The Black Cauldron. Is that scary? <laughs> a movie that opened a month after this one. I don't know what it was because I, again, I remember nothing, I remember nothing except nothing terror. Too. And it freaked me out so much. And I would leave the room and Suzanne would just basically say, I'm hijacking the TV. <laughs> And I'd go color or something because it freaked me out so much. The Black Cauldron is one of a very small number of Disney animated features I have not seen. I loved it as a child. And kind of like this movie, it has a reputation of being like this movie that was much scarier than anyone expected from it. And like upset a lot of children. It also, the fact that they're coming out the same summer, it's this period of transition for Disney where they were maybe trying to experiment with different kinds of stuff, but then Eisner and Katzenberg take over the company and steer it into the direction we know in the late 80s into the 90s. Imagine a world where Disney just leaned in and became a studio specifically focused on horror for children. Yeah, I think the problem is these movies did not sell. They were huge flops. Yeah, especially this one. 
Black Cauldron must have done fine on VHS because I saw it everywhere. But I also may have just been particularly attuned so I could avoid it. Yeah, I think that's what was going on. Uh, Yeah, that movie freaks me out. Another one, The Swan Princess. Oh, sure. We had The Swan Princess 2 on VHS, so I've seen that one more. I don't remember what it was that freaked me out, but I think it was just too dark. Like, even just the the colors were too dark. Look, if it's dark 90s animation you want, you should be watching The Last Unicorn. I loved The Last Unicorn. (laughs) Yeah, that movie's cool, but it's freaky. I should watch it. I haven't seen it. I wonder, is The Black Cauldron on Disney Plus? I would assume. I should rewatch it and see how freaky it is. I think it showed up when I searched for this movie as like one of the other results. Uh, I can easily imagine the people watching Return to Oz are the people watching. It's me. (laughs) (laughs) The Black Cauldron. The one fan of both. (laughs) So, Sam, we're doing this movie because you grew up on it. Like, were you also scared of it, or were you just delighted every time Pumpkinhead appeared on screen? I think I was scared, but I liked a lot of, like, I watched Titanic when I was really young, too, and loved Titanic. I think I was just a dark kid. I don't know, but... Sam said this movie needs more death. That's what I'm getting out of it. I don't disagree. When we talk about this, you're going to find that I I have done more research for this episode of this podcast than I ever have for any other episode. Thank God, because there's nothing in this movie to fill a romance podcast. Right. I I was glad when I watched Return to Oz last night. I was like, good. It won't feel like too much when I'm here to talk about like five other Oz adaptations that I watched. Are they better? They sounded better when I looked them up online. Um... Most of them are better because I think this movie sticks. <laughs> I, I kept discovering more even up to like today. Like this afternoon, I discovered that there's a one hour Rankin Bass special from the 60s that never aired. Also called Return to Oz, like animated in Rankin Bass style. And I didn't have time to get to it. Well, Return to Oz is one of the book titles. Yeah. So it makes sense. Yeah. But it's not the second book. or No, but I don't think anyone was ever concerned about that. Book? I mean, I, it's definitely. Yeah, it's not the second one, because they did do, like, the sequel sequel, or they tried to, I think. And then this movie ended up being an amalgamation of a few of the books. So, this movie comes out of, and we'll do a whole thing, I'll, like, walk through the whole history of Oz adaptations, because basically as soon as the book comes out, it's being adapted into other media. There have been Oz adaptations going back to the silent era. There's pretty much always one in development or coming out. Oh god, and we still are in that phase. We are, yeah. Oh, we're going to talk about that, too. (laughs) But in the 50s, Disney bought the rights to almost all of the books. And this movie gets made when Walter Murch comes to the studio and is like, hey, we should, like, make an Oz movie. And they're like, yes, we are about to lose the rights. So by all means, (laughs) let's make it worth our while to have bought them. So they're like, Walter Murch, throw anything you want in here. I just love that they said that and he threw in the ruby red slippers, which they then had to buy the rights to. (laughs) Oh, yes. And that, I mean... We're fully transitioning into the episode now, but, like, the ruby slippers, to me, are the key to what is fascinating about every Oz adaptation that has been made since 1939, which is that every one of them is trying to adapt the books, but also wants to exist to some level in a universe that is consistent with the 1939 movie, because that is what most people know The Wizard of Oz from. And so, in this movie, they're like, look... We want to use Dorothy's shoes. People think Dorothy's shoes are ruby. If we have silver shoes, it'll just confuse people. So we got to pay up to MGM 
to get the rights to use Ruby slippers because they're not in the book. MGM introduced those in the movie. And like in the same way, every one of these things, these different adaptations is like pushing the line of like how much of the aesthetics of the 39 movie can they use without violating MGM's copyright. So they're all like trying to adapt the books and oftentimes be their own thing and launch their own franchise and be consistent with this like beloved classic. I can't wait for the Oz cinematic universe. Look, if Oz the Great and Powerful had been a hit, we'd be talking about it. There's the spin-off series set in the neighboring countries called Queen Zixie of Ix. I don't know those. what you're talking about. <laughs> he said it was his best. It was his favorite that he wrote. <laughs> but if you look at the like official map of Oz outside of the desert surrounding it, there are some other countries. And one is called No Land and one is called Ix. And it's not about, like, humans from our world showing up there. It is, you know, just set there. But it is called Queen Zixie of Ix, which is extremely fun to say. Yeah, you guys are going to have to cover the L. Frank Baum novels. Because I really just focused on film adaptations. And also a little bit on radio adaptations. Because that's all happening at the same time. Yeah, I read... Almost all of the Oz books. I remember being at summer camp and writing a letter to my mom saying I finished the ones I brought and she mailed me more Oz books in my care package. And they are very quick reads, but I really did enjoy them. They are good for children. Sam, did you read the Oz books? I've only I've only read the first one. I thought I, I thought about reading the other ones, but I just <laughs> I decided since the movie had nothing, <laughs> really not very much to do with the movies. I mean, the the movie doesn't have too, too much to do with the books. It's kind of like a mixture of many of the books and then brings in the ruby red slippers again. So it, I decided they weren't going to be super relevant to <laughs> my watching experience. But um, I did really enjoy the first book. The sassy talking chicken is a very recurring character in the books, though. Oh, yeah. oh is it really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, Belina. She's a fun time. I enjoyed Belina. I don't think it's Belina, but there is a an animated film adaptation from the early 30s that didn't get released at the time because it used Technicolor, which Disney had an animation copyright on. But that one has like a lot of chicken business in it. <laughs> it's a it's a wordless color animated film, so it's got like sound synchronization, which I didn't find that interesting. But, like, the last sequence of it is, like, they go and they find the wizard who is actually magic. And most of what they... It's, like, a ten-minute short. Most of what they do with the wizard is deal with this chicken that is laying crazy eggs. I mean, hey, why not? Mark, I have watched so many Oz adaptations in the last month. We should probably start the episode because we have moved so far away from what we were talking about. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the very least important issue facing our world. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And was the Gnome King wearing the ruby red slippers kind of a serve? Look, it's a good look. Also, are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation, and thank God for that, (laughs) because we are here to dig in. To what we can get from Annie M. and Uncle Henry at the beginning of this movie. And that movie, of course, is Walter Murch's only feature film, Return to Oz. And we are joined by our very good friend, Sam, to talk about the movie that haunted and delighted her as a child. She is the one that brought us this film. (laughs) You're welcome. 
So, Sam, is this a movie that you owned growing up? Like, how how present was this in your upbringing? Um, so, this is a really weird <laughs> way to have found this movie. But when I was growing up, my parents would often, like, drop me and my cousins at, like, one of those, like, daycare places that, at night so they could, like, go out and do things. And after, like, 8 or 9 p.m., they'd always put on a movie. And for whatever reason, they thought it was a good idea to show this movie. Not infrequently. Like, <laughs> Several times. So that is that is how I found it. From daycare, basically. Oh my god. Have you seen it, Will? I mean, I have now seen it, but I watched or it. had you seen it. I turned it on at 10.30pm last night. I What a great time to watch this movie, <laughs> honestly. Um, yeah, it was the, uh, the last day before I had to go back to school for Christmas. And my wife said, oh, what are you doing for your last night? I said, I have to watch Return to Oz. And my wife said, I'm sure you'll enjoy that after I go to bed. So uh, it was less a time that I chose and more one I was informed of. Yes. <laughs> um, Nick was in the same room as me watching airplane videos on YouTube because there are times when I'm married to a 10-year-old boy with his fixation on airplanes. To be clear, he is watching clips from the movie Planes. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> Disney's Planes. From the world of cars. Yeah. And... Occasionally, he'd pull out his headphones and just be like, what the f*** is going on in this movie? And you're like, well, you see, the rocks around are the Gnome King's spies, and every once in a while, they need to dart beneath the earth to recap what we just saw in case you were so bored that you weren't paying attention. (laughs) I mean, fair enough. But I did, I don't know if I watched the whole thing, but I have seen at least some of it before. Because I knew about the wheelers <laughs> and the heads in jars. I mean, those are the two best ideas this movie has. I assume the heads in jars in particular are from the books somewhere. That's a very Oz kind of idea. Mm. They are somewhere. They're not. It's like a different princess. I, they renamed her and kind of turned her into yeah. Mombi, but it, it is. Well, because Mombi is a very different character in the second book. Yeah. But I also remembered TikTok some. But he really must have freaked me out as a kid, because I remember him as a villain. <laughs> <laughs> I, it must be just because I didn't like him. The scare- I mean, the, the new Scarecrow. I liked how every character is basically the original four, but slightly different. Which I think is like part of this movie's problem. Because as much as this movie is trying to be its own thing, and it's a thing Walter Murch talked about a lot, trying to do something different from the 39 movie. In part, he said, like, they wanted to do something pretty different so no one would accuse them of, like, tainting or trading on the legacy of the 1939 movie. But it's a movie that really feels like it's torn between, as you say, just kind of reskinning the original with, okay, we don't have a Scarecrow, we have the Pumpkin Man, we don't have a Tin Man, we have TikTok. But also... It introduces so many elements that don't really seem to make sense. Like, the mission of The Wizard of Oz is really simple. It's Dorothy is in this place, and she wants to get home. And she makes some friends who agree to help her get home. And the goal of Return to Oz is Dorothy kind of wants to go back to Oz, is taken back against her will. When she gets there, we are told, like, tangentially that Scarecrow is now the King of Oz, which, again, I picked up from the many other adaptations that I watched. But, like, it's just taken for granted that the audience knows that. And you have Mombi the Evil Witch, you have King Gnome, 
I guess Mombi is like a vassal to King Gnome because King Gnome is the one who took down the Emerald City, but now Mombi is in charge of it. It kind of seems like she's paying him tribute. Yeah. It's like a very complicated political situation. <laughs> I kind of assume she's the ruler of the decayed Emerald City. Yeah. And the Gnome King rules all of Oz. Right. And then on top of that, you're a little unsure what Dorothy's goal is. Does she want to just go home again? Kind of seems like no. Her home stinks. They send her to get electroshock therapy. Feels like she should stay in Oz. Oh my god. Just real quick to address the start of this movie. It is. It starts as one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yeah. She goes to a mental hospital, is threatened with electroshock therapy is basically given the Zelda Fitzgerald treatment where the building is struck by lightning and she's left strapped to the table, which is pretty much how Zelda Fitzgerald died, where the mental hospital she was in was caught on fire as she was getting electroshock therapy and they left her behind. I didn't know that. that Yeah, that's horrifying. Yeah, it happened in Asheville, where I currently am. But so it's like, you don't really understand what it is that Dorothy wants and... At the end of the movie, they're like, by the way, Ozma's a part of this story, too. And I'm like, I knew there was a weird, ethereal girl. But Ozma herself comes with a lot of baggage that we're just blowing past. Yeah, the dead king of Oz. Trans icon Ozma of Oz. And then I I, I can't understand. Was Scarecrow like a usurper? Because that's what, like, I was trying to figure out how Ozma just got no, because Mombi also managed to, I think, like, erase knowledge of Ozma. So, like, people didn't know she existed until the spell was broken, is at least yeah. how I interpreted it. It's just the thing of, like, you're not that invested <laughs> in Ozma before that, in part because, like, yes, she is the mystery girl who helps Dorothy escape from her electroshock therapy, But then she doesn't really appear again until they're like, by the way, she's the missing queen. It's like, well, no one mentioned that there was a missing queen. And I get that you say the witch erased the memory, but that means I'm not invested in this. Meanwhile, what you have been hitting me over the head with (laughs) is the idea that chickens are mysteriously banned. And that's because apparently rock monsters are allergic to eggs for no reason, I think. And the whole thing, it you tell me that Bulima, the the chicken, or is a big part in the books, but in this movie. You can't help but feel like the chicken is just there to serve some contrived chicken-specific plot point later on in the movie. Because, like, Dorothy has an iconic animal sidekick. It is a dog. The dog appears in this movie. So, when she gets transported with a different animal, you're like, this could just as easily be a donkey. Except they're not going to make the Gnome King allergic to donkey turds. The other thing is, like... Toto was with Dorothy when the house was transported to Oz. This chicken is just there. <laughs> this chicken just he showed just up. And like, do I like the robot chicken? Yes, I do. Do I think it would be funny to have 40 chickens on set who have all been trained to do <laughs> one different specific thing? Yes, I think that would be funny. But do I think that the chicken is a satisfying player in this narrative? I do not. But, Will, how else would they defeat the Gnome King? Yeah, they already tried the water trick. That was out the door. I heard paper beats rock. (laughs) I just don't understand the thought process behind most of this movie. It's like they were trying to reference the books in the worst possible way. Ah, there's a talking chicken in the book. Let's shoehorn her in with no explanation for how this chicken ended up here. 
it is the funny thing, too, of, you know, the chicken then can talk in Oz, and they're like, oh, I'm in Oz, animals can talk here. But there are no other talking animals in the movie. And it's, the 1939 movie also doesn't have any talking animals except for the lion. Like, the monkeys don't talk in that movie. Do they not? They don't. Huh. So, like, I have no relationship with the concept of animals talking in Oz. A thing I was thinking about, because another thing that I watched to prepare for this is a bootleg recording of Wicked. <laughs> I honestly think that the Wicked book introduces a lot of really interesting ideas. And the idea that there is, like, a difference between talking animals and non-talking animals, and then it, like, you know, is in- explored how that would work, is pretty interesting. I believe you. I have not read the Wicked book. I saw the musical on stage about ten years ago, and I watched a bootleg of it on YouTube, like, two days ago. The entirety of Wicked is currently on YouTube. That is wild. But, like... The talking animal thing in Wicked, as I just, like, run wildly from one Oz adaptation to another, doesn't really work for me because they introduce the concept of talking animals and then immediately are like, now animals aren't talking anymore. And I'm like, well, until you introduce this goat man, I assumed animals weren't talking. So this doesn't really feel like a problem to me. I have no relationship with this concept. Yeah. I mean, so the Wicked book is extremely different and much darker than the musical, which is pretty well known but in the book yeah the book is famously sexual i think it is i mean the opening scene is dorothy the tin man scarecrow and the lion being overheard by the witch discussing whether the witch is a like the word i believe they use unfortunately is hermaphrodite oh and i mean the point of that is also to make them seem like bad people sure so it is an interesting book and in the book it's like the talking animals become discriminated against and they start reverting to animal-like status because they don't they treated like second-class citizens and that's what like radicalizes Elphaba against the government and becomes a radical which is all sort of there in the musical but not entirely yeah it's like yeah it's <laughs> i'm curious to see what the movie will be like like if they'll flesh out the politics of Osmore, because there's also like the politics of regional disparities where where she goes to school is well developed but she comes from this backwater that has no electricity stuff like that um yeah so sam we'll circle back to return to oz where are you on wicked on wicked yeah I've seen it. I've seen it. I saw it once on Broadway. And I read the book once, but it was so long ago. I barely remember it. Okay. But you, you know, you do not have, like, strong feelings about Wicked one way or another? Um, I don't know. Um, no, I'm not going to lie. I was a little bit let down. I think because I I found it a little too fluffy, which kind of makes sense out if, if I had read, because I did read the book before. And while I don't remember it well, I do remember seeing the musical and being like, hmm. Like, it's really good. The music is gorgeous, but I felt like mm-hmm. the story just wasn't totally there for me. Yeah, to me, it's a show with a real disparity between the quality of its songs. You know, Stephen Schwartz is a great for a reason, and a story that doesn't totally hang together. And also, getting back to what we're talking about throughout this episode, like, act two of that show feels like it's shoehorning in a lot of allusions to the movie The Wizard of Oz. Some of them are in dialogue where it, like, Mm -hmm. makes references to lines, and some of it are things where, like, 
in the musical Wicked, they introduce the Cowardly Lion, and the Cowardly Lion is cowardly because Alphaba freed it from a cage instead of letting it fight for itself. That, I, I, it's so weird to think about the musical again, because it's like all of this stuff makes sense in the context of a book where it's fleshed out. But when in the musical, they, well, not the references to the musical or the movie, that was more in the musical. Yeah, I think it's a musical that only makes sense if you've seen the 39 movie. Yeah, but the interesting thing about the book is they, like, strip down this anti-establishment, down-with-authoritarian-government book to this fluffy musical where there's, you know, a happy ending and no one dies. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't think it's that happy an ending. Like, she gets away and she gets the guy, but it's, like, pretty grim. I mean, <laughs> she doesn't get away or get the guy in the... Yeah, in the book. All right. Yeah, yeah. Everyone dies pretty much except Glinda. I can't remember. Do they like reconcile Glinda and uh, Alpha in the books, or do they not reconcile? I can't remember anymore. I think they do. Okay, that feels a little better. But then. Glinda kind of like still sells her out for political ambition. Yeah, which is interesting. And yeah. I think the musical tries to get at that. The Act Two opener is a really good song that's like trying to play that tension. Yeah. Again, the music's really good, though. It's amazing. <laughs> in Wicked. Yeah. yeah. Um, how do you both feel about the fact that the John Chu Wicked movie is being split into two Wicked movies? If they're incorporating more story and and plot, then I'm I might be okay with it. But I I don't know. I just feel like the splitting into mo- two movies is becoming just a trend to make more money in it. If it's done to flesh, if John Chu sat down and was like looking at Wicked and said, wow, this musical has a lot of holes yeah, and the story doesn't make a lot of sense. I need more time to tell a coherent story, which the musical doesn't do. Then I'm on board. But I think it's mostly the studio saying if we split it into two and we put some of the songs in the second movie, people will go pay to see the second movie because of the songs. Yeah, I just, like, my thing is, like, you assume they split it at the act break, right? Mm-hmm. I would hope. <laughs> and I just think, like, this is true of a lot of musicals, but I think it's especially true of Wicked. Like, act two is just both more confusing and not as good. And, you know, John Chu, when he, like, gave the statement, like, ah, we're splitting Wicked in two, he talked about, like, the exciting feeling of, like, going out into the lobby after defying gravity and, like, the excitement you feel. But, like... Sure, you go out into the lobby after Defying Gravity, and that's great. But you go back in for Act 2 in 10 minutes, not a year later. Right. You're going to lose that excitement. I just... I mean, we'll see. They got two years to work it out. I mean, I'll see it. Bowen Yang is in it. I'll see it. Yeah. I'm a little skeptical of it, but (laughs) I will still watch it. (laughs) I'm skeptical, but at least the songs will be good. Yes. Which, honestly, that is the it's big Cynthia draw. It's Cynthia Erivo singing Defying Gravity. Like, that'll be something. Yeah. Like, I can't remember who's playing Glinda. Ariana Grande. Oh, uh, I forgot. How could I forget that? I, forgot. I think I forgot that because I think it's a weird casting choice. I think choice. it's also a weird casting choice, and I think that's also why I forgot, because I was kind of, in my mind, recasting it. And then I remember, you know, every time I'm like, why would they cast her? And then I remember, she started as an actress. She was in 13. She was in Victorious, which she got a spinoff of. I forgot about that show, too. Did you know Netflix did an adaptation of 13 last year? No. Oh, my God. I didn't see it, but uh, the New York Times gave it an okay review. Hmm. 
did you know that Ariana Grande, as the breakout star of Victorious, was resented by the lead actress? Victoria Justice, I think is her name. Yes. And it, that clip, Nick and I still say, I think we all blank all the time. Have you seen that clip? It's an interview, and Ariana Grande says, oh, yeah, sometimes I'd be singing backstage. And Victoria Justice jumps in and just goes, I think we were all singing. (laughs) (laughs) And so now whenever Nick says he's doing something, I'm just like, I think we're all doing that thing. Good. So Return to Oz. They do be returning. They do be returning. Return to Oz is the only feature film directed by Walter Murch, who is a Hollywood legend. Mostly as an editor and a sound designer. He's actually the first person ever to receive a credit in a movie as sound designer. And that's for a little movie called Apocalypse Now. Wow. He also did the sound for THX 1138 and American Graffiti, The Godfather, The Godfather Part 2. He edited a whole ton of Coppola movies, including like The Conversation and Godfather 3. We talked on our Cold Mountain episode about how Cold Mountain was like really radical because it was the first movie to be edited in Final Cut Pro. That was Walter Murch. Oh. He, like, he wrote the book on film editing. If anyone ever recommends you a book on film editing, it is Walter Murch's book. Like, he is one of the most influential people in the history of film as an editor and as a sound designer. And in the mid-80s, he goes to Disney and he's like, you guys should make an Oz movie. It's a natural fit for Disney, which people had been saying going back to the 30s. Once Snow White came out in 1937... People are like, oh my gosh, everybody loves The Wizard of Oz. Disney should make a Wizard of Oz movie. And Walter Murch goes to them and he's like, you guys should do this. And they're like, oh my gosh, we have the rights. Please do it before we lose them. And then we paid for them for nothing. And he co-wrote the screenplay with Gil Dennis. He really wanted to do something really different, really distinct from the previous movie. And initially he was setting it to do this like big globetrotting shoot. Like everything was going to be on location. They were going to shoot the deadly desert in Algeria. They were going to shoot the ruined Emerald City in Italy. Yeah. But then Disney wouldn't pay for that because the early 80s were not a great time for Disney. So instead, they shot it on sound stages in London, and Kansas was the Salisbury Plain. And then, five weeks into production, Disney decides they don't like the footage, a feeling I understand, <laughs> and fires Walter Murch. At that point, Murch's good buddies, Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas, go to Disney and are like, You have to give Walter his shot, you have to let him make his movie. And George Lucas promises to take over directing of the movie if there are any further issues. I mean, it sounds like some of the issues was Disney's fault. (laughs) I mean, I don't think the production design is the problem with this movie. Yeah, fair. I think the story is the problem with this movie. Oh, yeah. The plot of this movie just makes no sense. Yeah, and it's funny because literally just before we recorded, I watched Journey Back to Oz, which is an animated movie from the 1970s which is very similar to this one in its style. It is about Dorothy gets swept up by a tornado. She is back in Oz. Mombi is up to her old tricks. The Scarecrow is the king of Oz. Dorothy has to team up with Pumpkinhead and uh, a wooden horse who I believe is named Woodenhead. And they have a lot of the same issues. There's no King Gnome in it. And like, that's not a good movie, but it is a coherent movie. And it predates this one. I... It just remembered, we watch Ozma drown. Yeah, <laughs> like we a sure girl do. dies in this movie, and it just is good that she happens to be the mystical <laughs> princess of Oz. I didn't realize she died. <laughs> I think I just blacked Look, that out. Look, she's left in the river in a storm. <laughs> she's 
pulled under the water and never surfaces again. I think in my mind, I just assumed she was in another pond in the desert. and <laughs> She was going to be fine. There are ideas in this that I like, most of which I feel like come from L. Frank Baum, I assume. Like, the deadly desert is a cool idea. Now, Dorothy does deal with that problem immediately, because it turns out there's just, like, three feet of rocks she has to walk over. Yeah, thank goodness for the stepping stones. And not just the stepping stones, but she comes in very close to the edge <laughs> yeah, of the deadly like desert. like you can see the forest like, right next to her. <laughs> that's the other issue with this movie, is when it does introduce problems, they're almost always dispensed with immediately. Like, the Gnome King is the only one that really lasts. And the Gnome King looks great. It's claymation. I love him. He's awesome. They do the thing from the 1939 movie where the big characters in Oz parallel people in Kansas. He's the evil doctor who performs electroshock therapy on children. Who also dies. Yeah. Yes, the doctor dies when the place burns down. Because he had to protect his machines. I do love the design of that machine where it looks like a little face. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, they had to get TikTok in there somehow. So... Like I said, this is coming out of this, like, long history of Oz adaptation, which really start while L. Frank Baum is still writing the books. Like, in 1908, L. Frank Baum puts together a multimedia show in Chicago and New York that has, like, some silent film and some people singing songs and, like, all kinds of stuff telling stories of Oz. And that was well-reviewed, but a financial flop. There's a silent film in 1910. In 1914, he starts his own Oz Film Company to make adaptations of a couple of the stories. A lot of those are on YouTube. That's the thing. Like, all these Oz adaptations that I'm watching, I'm not having to, like, go rent these things. Even Wicked was on YouTube somehow. (laughs) Yeah, that's crazy. That is crazy. There's a 1925 silent film directed by Larry Semin in which he plays the Scarecrow. It's, like, widely loathed. But, like, what you get is just constantly there are Oz adaptations coming out. This is just always in the mix. MGM bought the right in the 1930s, but didn't manage to put it together. Ultimately, it's just Sam Goldwyn who's holding on to those. There's radio serials on NBC in 33, on CBS in 1938. And then when Snow White comes out, everyone's like, oh my gosh, we got to adapt fairy tales. And definitely, problematically, there's a real focus on, we got to adapt fairy tales and adventure stories that involve little people. Because they're like, maybe the dwarves were key to Snow White's success. So there are bidding wars around The Wizard of Oz, and there's a race to adapt Gulliver's Travels for the Lilliputians. That is not a children's story. Correct. There is actually an animated Gulliver's Travels that comes out like two years after Snow White. I think I've seen the animated Gulliver's Travels. Really? I think I have. (laughs) Are you thinking of the weird Jack Black adaptation that no one watched? Is that one animated too? No. Oh, then no. It's not. (laughs) No. I was just trying to bring it up. (laughs) Mark, it's not true that nobody watched that. Because the Jack Black Gulliver's Travels came out during the run where every once in a while on Survivor, a reward would be your tribe gets to go and watch an upcoming movie, and a tribe got to go see Gulliver's Travels. Oh my god, I'd rather have sat in the jungle. (laughs) It's like always a bad movie. The one where they go to see Jack and Jill is like the funniest thing in all of Survivor, because they have to cut around the people who are clearly not enjoying Jack and Jill. (laughs) So all of the people? Nope. Too many of them are enjoying it. (laughs) Oh, yikes. The ultimate winner, though, Sophie, not enjoying it. Good for her. Good winner. Anyway, Snow White comes out. Everyone's like, we got to adapt it. Goldwyn still has the rights, but Disney starts doing in-house treatments to see if they can grab the rights. They really wanted to do an animated Oz movie. F. Scott Fitzgerald, we were talking about his wife earlier, he was on contract at Paramount and was reported to be working on an Oz adaptation to star the Marx Brothers. That honestly sounds 
intriguing. I love the idea. My first thought was confused because I was like, why are they playing Dorothy? Then I remembered <laughs> the three silly men that go along on the journey. Yeah, they, they should have the same old woman who's in all the movies play Dorothy. <laughs> then at the same time that's going on, Sam Goldwyn burns out on Hollywood, moves to Honolulu, and sells the rights to MGM. And so that's when they make the Victor Fleming movie. It's a gigantic hit. In the 1950s, Disney buys the rights to all the books. They put a movie called The Rainbow Road to Oz in development as like a vehicle to star Mouseketeers. But the movie was never finished. At that point, there is the 60s Rankin-Bass one that doesn't really come out. In the 70s, there's Journey Back to Oz, which stars Liza Minnelli as Dorothy. It's an animated movie. It's on YouTube. It's it's okay. It's kind of boring. <laughs> and then... Around 1980, Walter Murch comes to Disney. You also have The Wiz in there on Broadway and then adapted into a movie. And then since then, since Return to Oz, the books entered the public domain. And so there are tons of like weird, small-scale Oz adaptations that have come out since then. But of course, the most high-profile Oz things from that point to today are Wicked, the books and the musical, Disney's Sam Raimi's Oz the Great and Powerful, and, of course, The Muppets Wizard of Oz. Ugh. I can't believe you've seen Oz the Great and Powerful. I, I have not seen that either. That is a punishingly boring movie. What is it even about? I don't... Is it... Like, is there anything interesting about Oz? I thought... It... Wait, can I, can I guess based <laughs> off of seeing the trailer alone? Okay, this trailer would have aired, like, ten years ago. Yeah. Um, James Franco plays the wizard. Uh-huh. He has a love triangle with... Glinda the Good Witch and Elphaba, or I guess just the, the Wicked Witch of the West, played by Mila Kunis, who becomes scorned and evil as a result, and that's why he wants her dead. Um, You're forgetting, of course, that there is a third witch. Okay, so a love there's quadrangle? A there's a witch of the East. Oh my gosh. Oh, Narcissa, I guess, yeah, she has to be in there somewhere. She's in it, too? That name was a little on the nose. James Franco as Oz who is just a charlatan. They make that very clear. You've got Mila Kunis as the nice witch who gets turned into the Wicked Witch of the West because she's manipulated by her evil sister, the Witch of the East, played by Rachel Weiss. Hmm. And then Glinda is the daughter of the dead king. That's Michelle Williams. Oh my god. And of course, Oz's trusty flying monkey sidekick <laughs> is played by Zach Braff, <laughs> who is maybe the best performance in the movie. Honestly, that doesn't surprise me, because all of the other people are cast in a movie that they would just not try in. No, everyone's going for it. That's the thing. Franco, it's like a little mixed, the way most Franco performances are. Like, the women are all going for it. I think Michelle Williams, kind of good in it. Rachel Weisz, like, trashy fun. Like, the problem is, like, the story is just nothing, and Franco is kind of a black hole. I remember seeing that trailer, and I went on a journey seeing it for so long. I don't remember if it was like the trailer was in theaters an abnormal amount of times, or I was just seeing a lot of movies. But I went from excited to having no interest without the movie coming out. Yeah, well, it's bad. You don't have to watch it. <laughs> At least that one actually has romance. It has so much romance, and this one has a little bit. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else we need to talk about before we can talk about the romance of Return to Oz. Like we said, this movie's a big flop. It makes $11 million in North America against a $28 million budget. It did get an Oscar nomination for visual effects, which I think is kind of cool. Yeah, I did like the visual effects. 
it lost to Cocoon. <laughs> and I would say the like really notable thing, I think, for us as children of the VHS era is that this movie is the debut of the Disney logo that we grew up yeah. on. The like blue screen with the white bars making up the castle. I was thinking that, the first that when that I that saw it come to. up, I was like, my childhood in a logo. <laughs> Not the fancy 3D castle stuff they're doing now. Yeah, and the thing is, Sam, I don't know if you know this, they have retroactively added the 3D castle <gasps> to older movies that they think people like. So like if you watch The Little Mermaid, it's got the new castle on it. If you watch The Black Cauldron, it's got the old one. <laughs> More reasons to support the black culture. <laughs> if I hadn't started a new TV show that I'm excited to watch, I would watch the black culture tonight. What are you watching? Uh, slow horses. Oh, okay, you're a slow horses guy. I ju- I heard about it on a pod. Is that like a thing? I'm not on Twitter. No, Mark. Nobody is a slow horses guy. You're alone. Okay. You and the AARP movies for grownups <laughs> who nominated it for best series. <laughs> Okay, so I heard about it on a podcast, and I was like, huh, a British spy drama about spies who are bad at their jobs, but is still a drama. Sounds interesting. Also, Olivia Cook is in it. You know, Mark, we have not talked about this year's M for G nominations. Do we Do we need to do a, <laughs> a quick, a quick, quick 20? Ro- quick 2022 M for Gs. Let's go. Sam, I, of course, you know about the AARP Movies for Grown Ups <laughs> Awards. Um, not enough. <laughs> you are aware that I am the like creator of every relevant Wikipedia page for them, right? No, I didn't know that, but it only makes me love you more. <laughs> this is like my private task, and when they dropped the nominations three days before Christmas break, I suddenly had to drop all the lesson planning that I was doing and create a new Wikipedia page for this year's nominations. I think had to is an operative word there that's doing a lot of weight. What was I going to do? Let people not be able to find them? His fans had to know. Oh my god. Can you see the page views? Mark, they dropped best buddy picture again. They keep adding the category and getting rid of it back and forth over and over again. I guess they must just, if there's a movie they want to win, they create the category and then pick some other random fillers. I mean, I I actually think that is maybe what they do. Yeah. Yeah. Alan Cumming is going to host again, but also I would like to once again register my beef with the AARP Movies for Grown Ups Awards, which is that the ceremony is in January, and they do not air it, the broadcast, until March, which means for two months, I have to avoid finding out, because I want to watch Alan Cumming sing a little song about Tar, and then tell me whether it won. Are there really that many spoilers out there? Look, the day after those awards come out, Every trade magazine is going to say who won the AARP Movies for Grown Ups Awards. And I don't want to know until Alan Cumming tells me. It is kind of funny that it is covered in the actual trade magazines. That is really funny. That was a problem for me when I was creating these Wikipedia pages because it's only recently that the trades have started covering it. So for the older ones, the only sources I had were AARP themselves and the other Wikipedia editors (laughs) did not like that I didn't have third-party sources. And I'm like, what can I say? In 2007, no one cared about the AARP Movies for Grown Ups Awards. Quietly joining the ranks of the Oscar contenders. Uh, Sam, this here is the the AARP The Magazine issue that contains the first-ever Movies for Grown Ups nominations, which I keep by my side at my desk (laughs) just to remind myself of what this is all about. Oh my God. So do you think Tar has it for the movies for grownups this year? No, I mean, I think Fablemans should sew it up. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's a real M for G. What's the best intergenerational friendship nominees? 
So best intergenerational film, we've got Armageddon Time, Everything Everywhere All at Once, <laughs> The Fablemans, A Man Called Otto, and Till. I feel like the movies for grown-ups almost never get it right. <laughs> so I'm very curious. I Armageddon like, Time is a great nominee. I feel there. like a man called Otto is going to win, though. I mean, they do, especially in recent years, they really like to spread around the wins. That's so wholesome. So we'll see. Well, they want lots of people to come to their thing. Oh. <laughs> it's a little less wholesome, but it's still nice. Yeah, honestly, that one to me feels like it should be Armageddon Time. Best grown-up love story. We've got Empire of Light, Good Luck to You, Leo Grand, Lady Chatterley's Lover, A Love Song, and Ticket to Paradise. Oh my God. Just like an, an okay list. Yeah. Um, oh, boy. Movies for grown-ups. All right. Shall we return to Oz? Yeah, let's return to Oz. Um, I don't, I don't know that I have that much more to say before we really get underway into this movie. Look, I love the wheelers. I just feel like I need to say everything that I find interesting about this movie because the romance will be dispensed with immediately. <laughs> The Wheelers are great. The Wheelers are are Mombi's henchmen. Mombi is the mean witch. The Wheelers are like mean punks. The Wheelers remind me of the punks from Howard the Duck. <laughs> yeah, it's like a it, they're like Cirque du Soleil punks. They are very acrobatic. They don't have rollerblades. They have one wheel attached to each foot, and then they're carrying like arm extenders inside their long sleeves that also have one wheel on them. So you're like, hmm, how do the wheelers fight? I don't know, but they're very mean and intimidating. <laughs> they're creepy, very though. Creepy. The head caps are so... <laughs> I love that. they Because so when they're rolling around, they're on all fours. So their hats on the top of their head have these, like, creepy silver masks. So you see this, like, spooky face coming at you. I love their design. I'm going to quit my job and become a wheeler. I think the scariest to me is when all of Mombi's heads start screaming. Yeah, the heads are... I like that moment. That's the thing. There are, like, cool things in here, especially in the, like, special effects production design. It's just that the story of the movie doesn't make sense and it's hard to care about it. And I don't know. There's <laughs> there's just so little to latch onto in this movie. And even when you think something is cool, like a claymation rock face, it then makes it boring by repeatedly having it recap the movie you're in the middle of. <laughs> I will say some of it, I wonder if it's grown-ups not knowing how to make movies for children. Like, the recap thing being like, oh, they might get confused. Let's re-explain it to them. I am just kind of like, Walter, your buddy George Lucas helped keep you this job. And in the 1980s, Lucas, like has some understanding of how to do this. Now, to be fair, this movie's falling, like, right between Return of the Jedi and Howard the Duck for <laughs> Lucas-related productions. Everybody has a, a couple but, of years. <laughs> like, Return of the Jedi is fun. And you're just like, maybe if we could, we could bring some of that juice to this, it would be a little more compelling. Because there are some parallels, right? This movie's about a rebellion. They have to team up with weird locals. But it's just, like, inert. Half the problems are are dealt with immediately, and the others you don't understand. It feels very flat. In the moments where it's not terrifying, it's flat. There's no whimsy. Yeah, I think it's just the characters are not... Like, they introduce the new characters, but they're not fun. <laughs> I think part of the problem is that this one, unlike just about every other Oz adaptation, is that it's not a musical. Mm. And I think this is a movie that kind of needs to be a musical. In part because of what you said, Sam, about how similar it is to the 39 movie in structure. Where, like, 
you fall in love with the Scarecrow, for example, because he sings a great song right when you meet him. Yeah. And you meet Jack Pumpkinhead, and you're like, what? what is this guy's deal? He, like, was a pumpkin who got enchanted by his mother, and now his mother is dead, and now he's a prisoner of Mombi the Evil Witch, who is herself a vassal of the Gnome King. It's like, Jack Pumpkinhead, what is your deal? What do you want? Who are you? He wants a mom. And, well, and, it's, and it's like, yeah, it's like a twisted version. <laughs> they all want something, but wanting a mom is, feels weird. I don't know. <laughs> calling a, like, 10-year-old girl mommy feels very awkward. Yeah, and so she's also a stranger. <laughs> it's, like, it's weird. <laughs> I do think it's interesting how this movie ages Dorothy down. Yeah. Like, closer to her age in the books. Yeah. Like, Judy Garland is famously too old to play the character. Mm-hmm. So here they've cast somebody who is 10 years old in her feature debut. So you're just like, this is Dorothy. This is a kid. It is Dorothy. But it does feel a little odd then the ways that it is explicitly in continuity with the other movie, things like the Ruby slippers. Cause I'm like, well, no, this like that Dorothy is an older character as far as I'm concerned. Like I don't watch that movie and I did rewatch that movie in all of my Oz watching. <laughs> like when I'm watching that movie, it doesn't feel like Judy Garland is playing younger. It feels like the character of Dorothy has been aged up. And so here it feels like we have regressed. Yeah, yeah. I think I would I think part of that is, yeah, an unfortunate continuity issue where they try and make it a con- a continuous sort of story without really addressing that they're entirely changing Dorothy's character. <laughs> so speaking of Dorothy and especially her time in the fields of England, I mean Kansas, should we talk about the romance? I assume between Auntie M and Uncle Henry, but I have not looked to see what you did, Sam. I, I did do between Auntie M and Uncle Henry, but I will say, I think there's an argument to be made that Mombi and Gnome are the true romance in this movie, but... Okay, the Gnome King wears ruby high heel slippers, <laughs> has a room full of just pretty objects, surrounds himself with rock-hard studs, <laughs> And, like, okay, Gnome King and Bombi. Sure, Sam. He can have lots of loves, Mark. Right, the Gnome King has a modular body. Like, the Gnome King is, like, way outside of any binary that we could place him in. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) I do appreciate that, like, apparently this whole thing is about him trying to become human. And his, you know, belief that every jewel in the world belongs to him. him. (laughs) Yes, this is good. I love that the Gnome King's beef with the Emerald City is rocks are made under the earth. I am the king of under the earth. Gems are made under the earth. I am the king of under the earth. All of the emeralds in the Emerald City, therefore, are my property. I can go to war with the Emerald City for stealing all of my emeralds. So as an example of how this movie can only exist in continuity with the 1939 movie, the Emerald City in the books, or at least in the first book, is not made of emeralds. Yes, yeah, I learned this, like and I a, love this idea. Yeah, isn't it a trick of the lighter color or something? No, they the force you to wear green yeah. glasses, because otherwise it'll be too overwhelmingly green. But actually, it's like another con of the wizards, where yeah. it just makes everything look green and impressive. I yeah. love that idea. Great idea. Obviously, it's about the hollow promise of the greenback paper money. I mean, perhaps. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you know I love a good bimetallism metaphor, but... <laughs> Okay, so the romance. Right. Yeah, Sam, let's talk Let's talk about the romance. So every week, 
we break down the romantic plot line of a movie into five points to help us walk through what it is we're talking about. And Sam, because you brought us, you, you helped us return to Oz, we've asked you to guide us through the central romance of the film. Uh, so most of this happens in the first 11 minutes of the movie. <laughs> I'm glad you timed it. I'm surprised it's not all of it. Um, No, there's a scene at the end that kind of counts. So that's number five. <laughs> but one through four in the, in the beginning. So you first meet our two lovebirds, Auntie Emma and Uncle Henry, when Auntie Emma is checking on Dorothy not sleeping. Can't you sleep? It's past one o'clock in the morning, Dorothy. Wish I'd put my head on my and go to sleep like Toto. Soon you will. This movie, by the way, starts exactly like a Twilight Zone episode. It starts with a field of stars and then an open window that the camera flies through. It's literally the opening credits of the Twilight Zone. But then after that, it's like, nope, just a bedroom. Just a little girl with severe depression and insomnia. Yeah, and I made this point one because... Uncle Henry just kind of like spies on them and doesn't come in or anything, just kind of watches them have a moment. And I think later you kind of come to realize that maybe Uncle Henry's depressed because, and I'm jumping ahead now to a later point, but later Aunt M says something about his leg being mended and him not doing anything. They also lost their house. Yeah. Yeah. I think part of what's a bummer about this movie is how much it turns the events of the Victor Fleming movie into a tragedy. Yeah. Like, that movie is a whimsical adventure that, like, has a cathartic ending of there's no place like home and doesn't Dorothy love Auntie M and isn't it wonderful to be home in this house that is still there? And in Return to Oz, the house is permanently gone. Its loss has bankrupted this family. They are going to have to take out a second mortgage. We're told it's been six months since the tornado and Dorothy hasn't been herself since. It takes all of the events of this whimsical movie earlier and turns them into like the family's shameful, ruinous secret. Yeah. Yeah. There is, I think, an argument you could make that all of this story actually revolves around Aunt M and Uncle Henry's mental state. I love this. So like you, you start with Aunt M's worry about Dorothy then you move to them disagreeing about getting financial help from her sister. I just can't see paying out money for this doctor when we don't have any. Garnet said she'd loan it to us. Garnet, that's charity, Em. She's my sister's family, not charity. Hannah, it's been six months since the tornado and Dorothy hasn't been herself since. I'm taking her to Cottonwood Falls tomorrow to see if she can be helped. All she ever talks about is someplace that just doesn't exist. Talking tin men, walking scarecrows, ruby slippers. They ultimately do it because it seems like Aunt M has taken over the house, like running the house in general. Like she makes a comment to Dorothy, which I find a little weird to say to your daughter about her, you know, surrogate father or a real father, whatever their relationship is. But she's like makes this comment about his leg injury because Dorothy's like, you know, his he broke his leg and she's like, it's mended. <laughs> And you're just like, okay, so there's, there's some tension down there going on. And then she takes her, so this is this is the fourth point. So she's taken her to them, like, at some point in this long discussion about needing financial help. I guess they decide 
to get help from her from M's sister and like give Dorothy this electroshock treatment. So they get to the electroshock treatment center hospital thing, and I like suddenly they're leaving her overnight. Like like there's a conversation about be home before dark that M Dorothy and Uncle Henry have while they're leaving, and then. At the center, suddenly Dorothy's gonna stay overnight, and Aunt Emma's just like, "Well, I gotta get home to Uncle Henry before sundown." And you're like, "Do you like which which here probably needs you more, your husband or your daughter who's about to go through electroshock treatment?" So I find that a lot of the story seems to be this like weird. It like pretends it's about Dorothy's like, "I need help. I'm getting you know like I'm having these dreams and." They're about Oz and, you know, now there's a whole issue in the world because of Dorothy's dreams. But really, it seems like the issue is more based on Uncle Henry's sort of mental state. And like, like at some point in the farm scene, she tells Dorothy the entire reason that she needs to go get this treatment is because, well, when you don't sleep, you're no help to me the next day, which is insane. So clearly this tornado didn't just uproot a house. It uprooted a family. Yeah. So then the whole Oz shenanigans happen, and then we get to the last point, which is point five, when they are they find Dorothy in the woods, and they all go home, and you can see like the house is finished. But what's interesting is now suddenly Uncle Henry is working on the home, so it's like you have this progression of Dorothy coming back and Uncle Henry's mental state being better because she's home and happy, and like that being the sort of I don't know, final image and their family is back together now. There is something then too of like Dorothy being like a, a force of restoration because when she arrives in Oz, it's like Narnia rules where a lot of time has passed in Oz and the kingdom has fallen into decay. King Gnome has invaded, taken all the emeralds. The city does look like like a Roman ruin in the 1700s. Yeah. And that sort of reflects the way that Kansas has also fallen into this mortgaged out decay as well and just as Oz is restored so is the Gale family home but again the problem is that like we don't feel that Dorothy (laughs) has a big problem with the way the house is (laughs) so it doesn't feel like her two problems have been solved because it doesn't really feel like Dorothy has a problem except like maybe she should live in Oz I mean, the end of the movie is that Dorothy's come to terms with that she should just lie about Oz. Yeah, pretty much. It's a huge bummer. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. that's the end of the movie is that she sees Ozma and Polina in the mirror and they say, don't tell anyone. (laughs) And then she's happy. Yeah, it it sucks. (laughs) No good. This movie, not great. great. Sorry, Sam. No, it's not. I, I really still think, though, the witch, the Princess Mombi is a fun character, though. Like in this film, I like. I like their. I like the head swapping. I like the head swapping. Yeah. I really, I really liked that as a child. Like, was terrified of it. In Journey Back to Oz, Mombi is played by Ethel Merman, and she is just a generic green-skinned witch. And I like that here, Mombi is a lady who has no head, but decapitates her enemies and can swap their heads onto her. I guess she still has her own original head and can put that on too. I do like how Mombi is introduced in. It's almost like Isabella Rosalini in Death Becomes Her, <laughs> where she's just like seductively Lounging. laying on a couch. Yeah. Yes, good. This is why I was convinced she has romance in this movie. <laughs> who is she posing <laughs> for? Probably the rocks. Who else can see her? 
Can you imagine turning everyone to stone and then just being stuck alone? But they have the wheelers, Mark. <laughs> yeah, she does have the wheelers. And all the other heads the to talk to. And in Journey Back to Oz, she also had a talking parrot voiced by Mel Blanc, and she made a potion that grew her an army of magical green elephants, and I assume she could do that in this movie, too. Wow, that sounds fun. Look, you really, you want it to be, and for like 30 minutes it is, and then there's another hour. <laughs> Oof. All right, team, after watching Return to Oz, do you find the romance between Auntie M and Uncle Henry believable? I would say so, yeah. I mean, mostly the part about arguing about, like, whether to take financial help or not from her sister seems very real. Yeah, I mean, if anything <laughs> were to cause a tension in a relationship, it is money trouble in a depressed child. So yeah. I kind of buy yeah, it, that it's a bit rocky. As you paint it, Sam, it's a very passive-aggressive relationship. Yeah, and I was trying to wonder, because technically the movie is placed in still, like, the 18th, turn of the century, 1899, 1900 or whatever. And so I was like, maybe they're, like... Like, this is the 80s version of what that is. Like, the woman's still deferring to her husband. But she seemed, like, a little snappy for that. So, I don't know. But, you know, gender roles are looser on the frontier. True, true. So, so yeah. So, I couldn't tell because I was like, maybe that's why she's passive-aggressive because she can't actually say anything. So, they're like, oh, it's 1899. Like, she's not going to talk against her husband. I think she's more restrained by being a good Christian woman than by, like... Mm -hmm. just straight up gender norms obviously those things are intertangled i think aunt em is in a bad spot and uncle henry has i it feels weird to say like get over your injury but also we don't know if uncle henry has been milking it and she needs help around the farm (laughs) right that's the information we need to know about this relationship and then he does run at the end to get Dorothy. Like, he has the yeah. crutch and, like, throws it. And I was like, is that supposed to tell us that he's been faking it? Like, I don't understand. I like that read, <laughs> That once there is actual peril, he's like, all right, I guess I got to give this up. And then maybe, like, ten minutes later, he's like, <laughs> Yeah, now he has to fix the house. <laughs> Where would you rate this on a ten-point scale, Sam? Zero means you believe none of the romance. Ten means you believe all of it. I would say nine or ten. I believe this romance. It's not much, but I believe it. (laughs) Is it as believable as Congo? That's the test. (laughs) I mean, honestly, I think it is more believable than Congo. More believable than Congo. (laughs) One of our romantic points on Congo is maybe he's bagging the gorilla. So, um, uh, if that's the scale we're at now, I'm going to go with the ten. It's got to be a ten. Walter Murch, you did it. You never made another movie. But that's because you got it right the first time. <laughs> uh, do you think that Auntie M or Uncle Henry is dateable? I don't really want to date anyone in this movie. I... Well, a spoiler <laughs> we'll get alert. To that. You'll have to pick someone. I, I, I think I would date Mombi for the like fun times because you'd never be bored with her. I don't think you get to break up with Mombi. I think she breaks you up physically and takes you Probably at some point. Um, I do not want to date Annie M or Uncle Henry. Uncle Henry seems kind of like a deadbeat. And Annie M is passive aggressive in a way that I don't really need. I also don't want to date anybody who might put me (laughs) under electroshock therapy. (laughs) Oh, that's a good point. I forgot their real life counterparts. I mean, Mm. it's not like you'd know any better in 1899. Yeah, that's true. Every article you'd read would be positive about it. Yeah, you're not wrong. That's it's fair. It's interesting because the movie, I think, really gives it a negative lens. So, like, 
and I guess by the 80s, we'd kind of been coming around to realizing that it's not usually great. Yeah. But um, (laughs) it was interesting because, yeah, I was glad that they were pretty clear that that was wrong and like she needed to get out. I wasn't expecting it, to be honest. As far as who I would date in this movie, um, God, there are not a lot of good options. Um, I might, I might go out with a wheeler just to see what it's like. <laughs> I assume I could ride, ride around yeah, on their back. Yeah, you could probably learn how to That'd become be one that way. As much as I apparently disliked him as a child, I might go with TikTok because <laughs> if you get tired of him, you just conveniently <laughs> forget to wind up one of those little knobs for a little while. The couch flying guy, though, he has a couch and he flies. The the gump. Gump. Oh, I forgot his name. Yeah. The horse, the horse with the couch. <laughs> I just like, I don't want to be this shallow. I don't think I could be with someone named Gump. <laughs> I don't think I could be with someone who, by the end of the movie, is just head. a head. Yeah, that's a good point. Like a stuffed donkey head. The, the, the part I enjoyed, the couch part, did get eaten. All right. Um, Sam, here's our most important question. Do you think Return to Oz should be adapted into a stage musical? Uh, Will, one quick question. Do Auntie M and Uncle Henry stay together? Yes, until yes, they die. It's 1899. <laughs> yeah, there's, not, there's no out, but... <laughs> so, Sam, Return to Oz the musical. Should it happen? Oh, yeah. I think, this, I think this movie might actually be good if it was a musical. Because instead of having the weird, boring, flat plot points, you'd get, like, interesting little song numbers. Imagine the wheelers wheeling <laughs> through the audience. They would have a yeah, phenomenal a opening number. Can you imagine? They would go all dark and have very fun like disco stage lights going on. You're right. I think the prologue to this musical would need to be like establishing the status quo of Oz. Then we cut over to Kansas and do Dorothy's deal. Yeah, it would help a lot because you would get that there was an issue and why she's like, oh, I got to go back. Instead of her making this weird reference that she needs to go back and then no one really... Also, maybe Dorothy doesn't need to be depressed at the beginning, but she gets called back to Oz because Oz needs help. Yeah. Yeah, Ozma comes and summons her. Yeah. This movie stinks. It needs a lot of work, but it could be done. I think I think it's got some good good parts, aka the head swapping. I am glad that we saw it, to be clear. (laughs) Yes. I agree. I am glad I watched it. It's not good. I am looking forward to not watching any Wizard of Oz stuff for a while. (laughs) Yeah. I think you may have overwhelmed yourself, Will. I do. <laughs> I'm impressed you watch so much. I want to be clear. Every version of The Wizard of Oz that I mentioned, except for Return to Oz, the Victor Fleming movie, and Oz the Great and Powerful, is on YouTube. And if you are, like, a big, like, Oz head, you, there are just dozens of adaptations there. But it sounds like none are worth watching except for the 1939 movie. Um, yeah, there's still the one. It's like, it's like shark movies. There's still the one good one. The Meg. Starring Jason Get Statham. Get out of here. I, I screwed up on the box office game today because I didn't remember that the Meg was a thing. <laughs> All right. Well, next week we will be covering a sort of anti-return to Oz. In that it is good. A, a good movie. <laughs> yes. A good movie for adults that is not scary. We're talking about Game Night. It's a blast. Jason Bateman, Rachel McAdams, Kyle Chandler. Sharon Horgan. More people. <laughs> How many more can you get, Will? Let's go. Uh, what's his face? Billy Magnuson. That's one. End of, end of my knowledge. <laughs> oh, Dexter. He's in it. Michael C. Hall. Oh, he is in it. Yeah. Great movie. Highly recommend. Available to stream somewhere. 
Yeah, probably. Game night. It's good. Watch it. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the show, especially a review on Apple Podcast or Spotify will help new listeners find us. Last question for you, Sam. What is the best piece of dating advice you got from Return to Oz? Um, don't send your child to electroshock treatment. Uh. I don't know. It seems to have worked for them, right? <laughs> their, their house improves. Their situation improves. Everything is better after they send Dorothy to electroshock. Okay, that's fair. But only because it didn't happen. <laughs> uh, I guess... You could say get rid of your child for a little while to give you time to reconnect as a couple. That's what Sam's parents did. That's why we're here. You know what? That is true. That's how I saw this movie. Uh, My advice comes from TikTok, and it is make sure that you're with someone who makes you think, who can talk with you, and who you want to do stuff with. Ew. (laughs) Make sure you're with someone who turns all your knobs. (laughs) Better. Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye.